It's been my, my great honor to introduce uh, our speaker, Carla Hills, uh, an old friend and, and colleague from, from the government. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> you have seen uh, her, her, her uh, biography, which has been circulated to each of you, and uh, I'm not going to read that, but I'm going to say that uh, this is truly an, an amazing lady. Uh, she was the third woman ever to be nominated, to be elected, as, uh, appointed as, as a member of the, of the cabinet of the United States in 200 years. She was number three. She had to, she had to, she had to deal with with a highly complicated set of trade negotiations. Um, I remember when the when the final report came out um, of the of the Uruguay round that you negotiated, it was the size of a telephone directory um, in a major city, and the print was just as fine. I was asked to make a comment about the, the macro implications of this. I said, I can't. <laughs> Fortunately, she could. And she, and she mastered both the economics and the politics and got the, got the arrangement through. Um, I'm just going to conclude with, with making a little list. There's a time in all of our lives when we, we go to the bridge set and we, we start going into the golfing. I'm telling you, let me just read you the, the list of affiliations that Carla Hills has that you will find in the Wikipedia article. She was, she's the, was the co-chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, chair of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, executive committee member of the Trilateral Commission, executive committee member of the Institute for International Economics, director of Chevron uh, Texaco, director American International Group, director Lucent Technologies, director AOL uh, Time Warner, um, and the list goes on uh, for... This is an amazing person, uh, and I, it is my great honor, Carla, to introduce you, and I know you're going to have a fascinating presentation for us. Well, thank you. Well, that was far too generous. It's a great honor for me to be able to have this time with the Council of the American Ambassadors. Um, I think it's probably better that I limit my remarks to like 15 or so minutes and so that we can have an interaction on what's on your mind. But uh, I uh, noticed that uh, I, I was asked to talk about the North American Free Trade Agreement, the worst agreement that's ever been negotiated. <laughs> uh, but then I saw that Shanghai was added to the list and I thought, ah, I think that there's some interest in China. But if I have time, I'll get into it. I'll, I'll sort of watch my watch and see what happens. Let me just say to you, and I'm sure you share the view, that uh, for more than half a century, the US government, whether it was under Democratic or Republican administration, was strongly in favor of opening markets in the belief that uh, the free flow of goods, <laughs> services, ideas, and investment would benefit nations both rich and poor. And uh, America was a major force in diplomacy, helping to construct the global system that dramatically advanced the well-being of all nations. According to the calculations at uh, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, the uh, expansion of international trade and investment that occurred between 1950 and today has increased America's GDP by $2 trillion, and our allies benefited substantially as well. Reducing the restrictions on trade and investment not only benefited the rich nations, it hugely benefited those that were developing. 
according to studies by Dr. William Klein over at the uh, Center for Global Development, on average, when a developing country increases its trade by 1%, it decreases its poverty by an equivalent percentage. And so it becomes the very best uh, development tool and the most efficient that we could possibly have. And reducing poverty in, uh, and enlarging economic opportunities for poor countries is uh, not only a humanitarian effort on development, but also it creates tomorrow's trade partners. And we've certainly seen that, so you could call it an act of enlightened self-interest. Expanding their opportunities also contributes to our global security, for when an impoverished nation lacks the resources to seal their borders or enforce their laws, they become havens for international crime, terrorism, you name it. But in spite of these uh, demonstrable uh, benefits, we're experiencing a sharp reversal in policy, domestically and internationally. We've seen elections across Europe be uh, uh, aimed at nationalism. Brexit is certainly evidence of that. And I think the 2016 elections here in the United States all show signs, all these events show signs of a backlash against globalization and trade. So trade tensions have taken the center stage but without the applause. And in America, in, uh, economic nationalism is now sort of a shorthand term to describe our current trade policy. In his inaugural address, President Trump said, we must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. And shortly after making those remarks, as you all know, he withdrew us from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and announced that he would renegotiate or terminate the North American Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, if he didn't fix it. And since last August, the uh, representatives from uh, Mexico, Canada, and the United States have been working on the renegotiation. In my view, knowing what the NAFTA accomplished is critical to making a sound judgment about beneficial changes that uh, should be in the rene renegotiation. And first we must remember that by linking the three economies, we created a market of 490 million consumers and a $19 trillion uh, economic uh, universe. And uh, it eliminated all tariffs between the three partners uh, in the industrial sectors and most in the agricultural sectors. It opened up a broad range of services and uh, required the uh, 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 non-discriminatory treatment against cross-border service providers. And it removed substantial barriers to investment and provided protections for uh, investors throughout the region. And it was the first trade agreement to protect copyrights, patents, trade secrets, and, uh, and trademarks. And it was the first trade agreement to create an effective mechanism for resolving trade disputes. And today, roughly 80% of global trade is through supply chains that are interlinked 
and the North America region is one of the most vibrant. Specialization has uh, boosted productivity in all three nations. Interregional trade is up 400%. Our trade with Mexico is up 600%. And we don't simply sell things to each other. We make things together. Uh, the imports that we take from Mexico contain 40% U.S. content. And from Canada, that's, it's 25%. That compares with 2% from Japan, 4% from uh, China. And both Canada and Mexico have twice as many trade agreements as do we have, that is, with twice as many countries. So they have preferential entry to those countries. And so when they sell our products, which have a very high percentage of U.S. content, the producers of our products stand up and applaud. And, and the, uh, uh, our country has benefited enormously from the agreement. Today, 14 million jobs are hinged to our uh, trade with our northern and our southern neighbor. Uh, Canada is our largest export market. Mexico is our second largest. People forget that one-third of our total global trade is with our North American colleagues. So, and according to, the, again, the Peterson Institute, our economy is richer by $127 billion a year as a result of the increase in trade and investment that we enjoy in North America. And I would say that in addition to these economic benefits, our security collaboration has been quite remarkable. Since the NAFTA took effect, our three governments have worked closely, sharing intelligence, which has enabled us to reduce the reach of organized crime and improve security at our borders. Our collaboration has enabled us to expedite the legitimate flow of commercial uh, enterprise, and so we can focus on real dangers like potential terrorism. And we could and, sh and should further increase our security cooperation. But I think it's been put in risk by the President's comments, uh, particularly about Mexicans and Mexico. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Mexican Senate passed unanimously a motion calling for the end of homeland security cooperation with the United States. And the president of Mexico ordered a review of all bilateral relations with the United States. And as a result, Mexican officials have stopped meeting with their American counterparts regarding efforts to stop drug trafficking and, and international crime, various things, and have canceled our annual uh, military exchange. And to me, this is not good news. It is overwhelmingly in our shared interest to maintain and build on the commercial and security ties that we have been able to build up over the past two decades. As our business leaders implore quite regularly, do no harm in these negotiations. And no one would deny that uh, the agreement needs an update for uh, much has changed economically and technologically since the agreement went into effect in 1994. 
all three governments and their people would benefit from agreeing to modern rules for cross-border digital flows, e-commerce, and the export of digital products. Broader protection of uh, intellectual property covering digital content is essential for a 21st century economy. And energy trade has multiplied since the 2014 liberalization of energy in Mexico, which is enabling us to move toward energy self-sufficiency, which would benefit all three of our nations. And by taking advantage of new technology, we could make our customs processes much more efficient, uh, which would be an enormous benefit for our businesses, keeping in mind that 90% of our exporters are defined as small and medium-sized businesses. And we could improve licensing across borders for a range of professional services. So in my view, it's not in anyone's interest to be distracted by some of the debates that are ongoing regarding bilateral trade deficits, the agreement won't change that, or complicating the rules of origin that some high percentage, 70% has to be North America, but 40% of that 70% has to be by workers who make 15 or $16 more per hour, but 40% of that 40% can be by uh, persons not working their hands, but in research and development and upscale. Now you tell me how a small business can figure that out so you know what would happen. They would simply forego the benefits of the North American Free Trade Agreement. And to incorporate a sunset clause, everyone wants certainty. But to think that five years hence, it's going to be possible that the agreement evaporates is not going to encourage investment either in the, in, uh, among the three partners or outward, uh, inward investment that creates jobs and tax revenues. So my hope is we can focus on the concrete benefits that can flow to all three economies from an update, which will ensure that North America maintains and builds on the economic and strategic bonds that have greatly enhanced our joint prosperity and stability. But we do need to recognize that trade policy involves politics as well as economics. And according to the Pew Research Center, a substantial minority of Americans, 40%, believe that trade agreements are harmful to their financial well-being. And we need to ask, why do so many Americans hold an adverse view of trade agreements despite their demonstrable benefits, economic and security? And I believe there are two basic reasons. The first is grounded in American workers' anxiety with respect to loss of jobs, stagnant wages, and growing economic inequality. And correcting this will require our government and our private sector to work together to address the legitimate anxiety that exists in so many of our communities. And it is true that American manufacturing jobs have decreased over the past 20 years. But that decline began in 1980, well before the NAFTA took effect. U.S. factories today are producing twice as much product 
with half the workers that they did in 1980. So today we have six million higher skilled, higher paying jobs that are vacant. And many of these jobs only require 15 to 20 weeks training. Rather than destroying our nation's competitiveness by turning inward, we need to put in place effective social programs structured for the 21st century. For example, we could make better use of the internet to match the job seekers with the vacancies in jobs that exist nationwide. And we could provide a stipend for relocation and support during those 20 weeks of training. And we could establish public-private partnerships with those companies that are crying out for better trained workers for the vacancies that they now have. And in my view, the second reason why so many Americans are hostile to trade agreements is their lack of knowledge about the economic and security benefits that flow from cross-border commerce. They've been told repeatedly in two American presidential campaigns, 2008 and 2016, that trade and globalization takes their jobs. And to continue to capture the benefits that we derive from trade, we desperately need to get the facts out to our citizens. It's possible that the current talks will break down. And in that case, those of us who care about keeping our markets open will need to find ways to encourage our government to make its way back to the bargaining table. And I think foreign ambassadors, the private sector in terms of businesses, think tanks, university, and our local and regional leaders all have a role to play, and I'm hoping that they will do so. And since Shanghai was added to my assignment, let me just say a few words about uh, our relationship with China. There's no question that it has deteriorated in the last several years. China is not without its share of responsibility, but I believe that we could have been more skilled in dealing with its transgressions. For example, uh, we have declared that we're going to apply duties on imports of steel and uh, aluminum, aiming this at China. We're acting under the 232 provisions of the 62 Act, the 62 Trade Act, an old and rarely used provision. And it's made, it was passed to protect our nation's national security. But the, if you list at those that will be hit by these tariffs, they are all allies. Mexico, Canada, the European Union, Japan, and Korea. We import very little from China because they are restricted by a long list of anti-dumping actions that are in effect. So very little comes in from China. And so it's hard to make the security argument when our targets are our closest allies. And it's even harder to make when our Defense Department says, we don't import much. We don't use much imported steel. And uh, we're much, much wor more worried about the impact 
that uh, this will have as a security matter on our allies. So if we believe that steel and aluminum industry are in dire straits, we could have used a safeguard provision out of the 74 Trade Act, which uh, permits a temporary um, safe, uh, measure, and that would be in, consistent with our uh, obligations under the World Trade Organization. Without uh, uh, question, we do have uh, legitimate grievances against ch uh, China covering forced transfer of technology, uh, percentage caps on uh, uh, investments in certain areas, theft of trade secrets, illegal subsidies, and discrimination against uh, foreign investors. But rather than move unilaterally to impose tariffs under, this time we're using 301 of the Trade Act of 74, I believe we could be much more successful in challenging China's misdeeds with, through collaboration with our allies. Uh, all of them have the same complaints that we have, and uh, if we did file a, a WTO case the day after we uh, move forward unilaterally, but uh, our unilateral approach has alienated uh, the allies that would have stood with us. And finally, the uh, Department of Commerce, you probably all read about it, has imposed a seven-year ban on U.S. companies selling products to uh, ZTE, a, China co a Chinese company, telecommunications company, because of ZTE's failure to abide by the 2014 agreement prohibiting trade with Iran and North Korea and then ZTE lied about the fact that they were violating the sanctions. Now the ban, the seven-year ban, would not only result in a destruction of ZTE's business, but it would adversely affect thousands of good jobs here in the United States. And while I, I believe that ZTE should be penalized for its failure to abide by the agreement that was supported by the UN as well as the United States, we could have done a better job in tailoring our uh, penalty to avoid serious injury here at home. President Trump, in my view, is correct to revisit this decision that was announced by Secretary Ross uh, to impose the uh, seven-year uh, sales ban and ZTE likely will face, uh, uh, I think, record penalties, but hopefully these penalties will be financial and not have a devastating effect on uh, innocent parties, namely our U.S. companies and our U.S. workers. Uh, Chinese uh, Vice Premier uh, Liu He arrives today to talk about our bilateral differences and uh, his visit coincides with a three-day public hearing that began today on uh, the 301 tariffs, where 129 witnesses have uh, asked for time to speak. So uh, we will see whether a uh, deal can be made. As they say, we live in interesting times. <laughs> Hey, that's perfect. That's Should I take questions no, from you? No, I, uh, we will ask the audience for questions. Um, sir. 
Yes, uh, <clears throat> thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, I'm a former president of Boeing Japan, and <clears throat> when I take a look at the, um, the, 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 the aluminum and steel sanctions that have been placed, not only in China, but on, in Japan as well, especially on the aluminum side, the effect of this <clears throat> in terms of driving up prices for Boeing is a serious matter. And, it, <clears throat> and in addition to that, it affects the ability to maintain the workforce, even in Seattle, for example, in the, uh, the, the construction of the 787, because we do 35% of that, or we, we, we did, I'm not in Boeing anymore, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> in Japan. So how, does, how, how do you make a case uh, to, the, to this administration trying to demonstrate the effect that these kind of things have even on our, uh, our domestic audience here? Well, that question will be addressed by one of the witnesses that uh, are, uh, have, are participating in the public hearing, and I would be stunned, literally stunned, if Boeing was not one who was standing up. They are being hit by this, and they're also being hit by uh, those who, have, um, who are affected by our, uh, our various trade remedies, uh, listing who they would hit, soybeans, aircraft carriers, automobiles. I mean, these lists are out there that it's not just Japan. It is, Europe has put out a list saying, if you don't, the, you, Europe is exempted to June 1. And Europe has been very clear. If you are going to continue to penalize us for in reasons that we think are unfair and not compatible with the WTO, these, these are the sectors that we would tend to retaliate. Not a happy picture. Sir. When um, Putin and uh, Trump sit down together, um, are there many or any financial problems between Russia and the U.S. that should be discussed? With the Chinese uh, economic leader. No, no, Putin. No, uh, Putin. Oh, oh, Putin. I'm sorry, I misunderstood what you said. Um, I believe that you don't lose out if you sit down and talk to uh, the other side of the table, even where you have differences. The idea of slamming the door is not the way to solve the problem. And uh, I, so whether it's Putin and I don't happen to admire his style and his m manner of, of governance, but uh, to work to try to talk to the other side of the table about where, are there any commonalities? How do we get through the thicket? Uh, and the more you know about the economic circumstance and the political limitations of the party you're talking about, the better you will be able to map that out. So, yes, talk, by all means. I worry, though, that if you're not sufficiently briefed, you could say or do things that would not be compatible with the uh, end product that you want to achieve. Uh, just a, a quick question. Um, of course, Trump is complaining about the, the uh, bilateral uh, trade deficit with, with China and, uh, and, and notes that every year, single year since the year 2000, the size of the trade deficit between the United States and China has increased every single year. Um, 
what, what do you say when he, when he makes those kinds of comments? What is the solution to that if there is one? There's no question you're right that uh, the trade deficit has increased and uh, it has been adversely affected by the limitations on what we can do in China. But the trade deficit is not something that you can deal with with a trade tool. The fact is that as a, we're buying a lot of stuff from China. A lot of it is, 60% uh, uh, is intermediate goods that we're putting into products that we're producing. And uh, it's got a very large market, 1.3 billion people. And so we want to tap into that market. With 5% of the world's population, we're producing more than we can eat, and we would like to sell it abroad. But uh, I think, uh, you know, if you look back at um, China's progress toward market, toward a market economy, with Deng Xiaoping, he wanted to move forward. I can recall him saying, I've liberalized the uh, farm community, and I'm about to, this was in the late uh, uh, and early, the late 70s and the early 80s. I am about to, to address the industrial community, and it's going to be much tougher. But gradually they moved up. And Zhu Ranji in the early 90s, he dismantled a number of state-owned enterprises and dealt with the layoffs that he had to deal with. And it got up to about 2008, just before the financial crisis. It definitely leveled off. And since 2012, it, the reforms have declined. If my view is that China has, the China leadership, President Xi Jinping, has three major objectives. Number one, maintain the preeminence of the Communist Party. Number two, achieve economic growth to improve the well-being of our people so we maintain stability at home. And number three, generate international respect. But sometimes the mean to achieve number two will collide with number one. Because if I want to have growth, I'm going to have to shut down some of the zombie state-owned enterprises. But if I do that, then I have to lay off people, a lot of people, cement, steel, all those things are in overproduction based upon an economic model of investment and construction and export. And they simply have to move more to a model of supply. If, you, if you're talking to the Chinese today, there are economists, uh, Governor Zhou, who just stepped down from the, uh, the People's Bank of China, a really good economist. He knew and he was one of, he was a, a definitely a reformer. And by the way, when we negotiated with China the first intellectual property uh, agreement, Madame Wui was a vice premier and she led the delegation and Governor Zhou was number two on her delegation. So we have stayed in touch. And he wants the country to move into a supply, market-oriented way, can't do it overnight. But if you look at the data today, the private enterprises are profitable. The state-owned enterprises are not. And so they're gradually going to have to move 
down the state owner price, shrink them, but they're not doing that. They're putting the zombies together and providing them with credit. And that is not a positive outcome for China. So we need to have our, our we need to negotiate not with hostility, but it's a win-win. If we can help you move toward the economic picture that you, you spelled out in the third plenum in 2012, you will be better off. Your people will be more secure. And you will have greater respect. How can we do this? You know, and give them time. And not overnight, but a period of time where they could gravitate. I should just add that Governor Zhou, in his last major speech um, before the party plenum, uh, said that the debt buildup in China had developed to the point uh, that a financial crisis was inevitable. Uh, and then he went into great detail. So they, they have their problems also. Yes. Uh, sir. <clears throat> Madam Secretary, great to see you again. Uh, there are a number of Republicans in this room. Uh, and when I was a starting to work out in Ohio, the heartland of the United States of America, uh, Republicans were against laborers and trade unions. They were the bad guys in overalls <laughs> that wanted to rip up the economy. Now things have evolved and now you have a Republican administration after eight years of Democrats and they're talking, they're supporting workers against free trade and all the positive things that brought the economy to such a wonderful level. What could be done about this, Madam Secretary? <laughs> Great question. We need you to go back into government. And <laughs> um, it is true that uh, the Republicans over the years have been more attuned to free trade, open markets. The Democrats have been less attuned to that, and that's reversed. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's uh, uh, partly a factor of uh, leadership, partly a factor of gerrymandering and getting elected, and the concern that I described that I think is very prevalent. But uh, I also worry that the, you mentioned the Republican Party, uh, it may not survive. You know, we had the Whigs and the Federalists, and, uh, but there are a lot of Republicans that are distressed by the direction that the administration is taking on a number of issues and the style in which it is articulating them. And so uh, when I was in government, in both positions, uh, I had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, great people, my best friends. I, we, I'll never forget the uh, Lud Ashley, he's passed away, was a Democrat, and uh, they passed Gerald Ford a bill when we had double, you know, we think we're, we're uh, in tough times now. In 1974, five, and six, we had double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment, the Vietnam War, marching in the streets. They closed all bridges into Washington, D.C., and uh, we had scandal. That is, Spiro Agnew had stepped down in scandal, and then we had the Watergate scandal. And uh, what a Democratic House, a Democratic elected body picked 
a Republican, Gerald R. Ford, to be president. And he tried to do what was best for the country, not what was efficient politically. So he pardoned Nixon. And why? Because he said, we've got so many problems, I've got to focus on those problems. I can't fight the problems of, of yesteryear. And he did a number of things along those lines, but the bill, uh, the emergency housing bill came to his desk and it would have subsidized uh, mortgages for everyone in this room down to 6%, your double digit uh, interest rates. And President Ford said, my goodness, this will add to our, uh, our, our economic woes. We can't do that. We took it back and Lud Ashley said, publicly, this bill is a bill that is a turkey that cannot fly. And uh, within one week, we had a bill that would subsidize the mortgages down to the lowest quintile, only the lowest quintile, not the rest, with a sunset provision at the end of the year. And President Ford signed it. I still have a picture in my office of the Democrats signing, standing behind him applauding. So that kind of bipartisanship doesn't, uh, doesn't work today, and uh, partly because they don't know each other. Uh, it used to have caucuses on trade, Republican, Democrat. Danny Rosinkowski would have off-site uh, meetings with labor leaders, business leaders, U.S. trade representatives, Democrats, Republicans, and uh, talk and, uh, and debate trade issues. They don't do that. And in fact, they don't really know each other. The days when Lee Hamilton carpooled Gerald Ford's children to school, those are gone. And uh, uh, I think that we're, we're missing it. Uh, we really have to get the parties to get together more. They don't spend a lot of time in Washington, so they don't know each other. And uh, we've, got to, we've got to find a fix. I've got lots of uh, remedies, but uh, I won't take the time to bother you with those. <laughs> Sir. Uh, Carla, on the uh, theme of bipartisanship, uh, we were talking just before the, your presentation. And, and first, I'm not sure it was clear in your presentation or in Dick's introduction that you were the one who negotiated NAFTA. You're the one who uh, got it signed, uh, and you and and uh, President George Herbert, George Herbert Walker Bush were the ones that got it done. Now, since you ran out of time uh, in 1992, my question is, uh, if you'd had more time, do you think you could have gotten it done uh, and gotten it approved in a in the Congress in say 1992? Well, as I think I briefly mentioned to you, I give Clinton a lot of credit for getting it through our Congress. Uh, he called me and said, I need your help. He called Bill Frenzel, who was the leader in the Ways and Means Committee, said, I need your help. I want you to come over to the East Room and talk to the Congress people that I know are hedging or not enthusiastic, and I want you to sell it. And uh, that, you know, that was amazing. And he kept, uh, he kept in touch, and we did that several times, and I think it made a difference. Uh, it wasn't an easy sell. As was earlier mentioned, uh, we, we, did ha we had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, 
And Democrats in those days were anti-trade because the labor unions were their great supporters. And so it was a tough sell. And so, uh, yes, we started the negotiations in June of 91. We finished it 14 months later in August of 92. Bush Sr. signed it in December of 92. You have quite a bit of time before you can sign. And then President Clinton got it through the following year, and it took force in 94. But uh, I, I would give him a standing ovation for a reach out and for getting it through. Carla, thank you no. very much. We've run to the end of our time now. Um, but I did want to say that uh, your presentation today is uh, fully in keeping with your past performance. Uh, and I have, I have watched you in awe over the oh, years. You. <laughs> as you did one after another after another, you just hit one after another over the fence. So congratulations thank you. to you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you all.